When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1945, Britain was broke and broken. We'd won a war, but the country was exhausted. People were promised new housing, a national health service and a fairer society. What became of all that? In a new series of Jam Tomorrow, we look at how British society transformed after the war from national service to skyscrapers, from coal to corporal punishment. I'm Ros Taylor, and this is Jam Tomorrow. And welcome to Jam Tomorrow, where we look at how Britain changed after World War II. We think of post-war Britain and we think of the welfare state. But where did the money to build that state come from? Some of it came from America. In this episode, we look at the Marshall Plan, how it enabled the UK to start building a welfare state and how it gave us the illusion that we could hold on to our empire. So when we think about the 1940s, why do we barely mention the Marshall Plan? At the end of the war, Britain celebrated, but not for long. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing, but let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the King. Two months later, Churchill had been kicked out of office and replaced by a Labour government. People wanted a different kind of Britain. I told you at the beginning of this episode that in 1945 Britain was broke. It had just fought a war. But exactly how broke? Very broke. Even broker than France, which had been occupied by the Germans in 1940. In 1947, the American official William L. Clayton wrote a memo which put it in stark terms. We grossly underestimated the destruction to the European economy by the war, he said. Millions of people in the cities are slowly starving. Britain had an annual balance of payments deficit of two and a quarter billion dollars. Clayton warned that the UK and France could only meet that deficit until the end of the year. The US had to do something. It would have to kickstart European economies. And that memo concluded, quote, the United States must run this show. US Secretary of State George Marshall listened. The show became the Marshall Plan. Ben Stile has written a book about the plan. He's Director of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Winston Churchill had famously referred to Europe in the aftermath of the war as, quote-unquote, a rubble-heap, eternal house and a breeding ground of pestilence and hate. Much of Europe's industrial capacity had been destroyed by the war. Its transportation infrastructure had been even more grievously damage. And most importantly, the social infrastructure had collapsed. 
there were massive reprisals and extrajudicial retributions all over Europe that really were destroying any possibility of reconstructing the intricate division of labor you had across Europe in the pre-war era. In 1946, there was a significant recovery of sorts across Europe, but in late 46, early 47, there was an absolutely brutal winter which hit Britain particularly hard, which set back recovery and without question began to significantly concern policymakers in Washington. And particularly in mainland Europe, people didn't trust institutions like banks anymore, did they? Absolutely. And that was one of the aims of the um, Truman administration, to re-establish credible democratic government across Europe, re-establish credible non-partisan civil service infrastructure that could implement coherent policy, and to begin to re-establish some form of economic and political cooperation across Europe. So there was a humanitarian imperative, but there was also the threat of communism as America saw it, wasn't there? And that was very important to the Marshall Plan and the rationale behind it. Without question, although we shouldn't see this first and foremost as an an anti-communist initiative, the United States was very concerned to prevent the re-emergence of anti-democratic forces, movements of any sort across Europe. So the United States was also concerned about the revival of fascist parties, of course, particularly in Germany. But even within France, for example, the United States was very concerned about uh, the return to power of um, de Gaulle and uh, his party. The United States was very concerned to make sure that the political spectrum was limited to parties committed to a democracy from the center-left to the center-right. General George Marshall, who had become Secretary of State in early 1947, went off to Moscow in March of 47 with Sir Ernest Bevan, the British Foreign Minister, and Georges Bidot, the French Foreign Minister, to negotiate with their Soviet counterpart, Vyacheslav Molotov, and then with Stone, the parameters of what might become a peace treaty with Germany to allow for an end of the occupation. And when Marshall went home after six weeks of difficult negotiation, he became convinced that the Soviets were absolutely determined to stoke turmoil and chaos and division in Europe to set back the recovery that had begun in 1946 in order to spread Soviet influence on the continent. And that was what ultimately led to the Marshall Plan. Here's Marshall testifying to Congress in 1948 about why the US was sending billions of dollars in aid to Europe. Why must the United States carry so great a load in helping Europe? The answer is simple. The United States is the only country in the world today which has the economic power and productivity to furnish the needed assistance. The six and eight-tenth billion proposed for the first 15 months is less than a single month's charge of the war. To be quite clear, 
This unprecedented endeavor of the new world to help the old is neither sure nor easy. It is a calculated risk. It is a difficult program. And you know far better than I do the political difficulties involved in this program. But there's no doubt whatever in my mind that if we decide to do this thing, we can do it successfully. And there's also no doubt in my mind that the whole world hangs in the balance as to what it is to be. If you talk to most Britons about the late 1940s and what was happening at the time, they would probably talk about the foundation of the NHS and the welfare state and the hangover from the war and rationing and so on. And all that was happening, but there was also something else going on, which was the British Empire starting to fall apart. And that doesn't get talked about so much in Britain. Tell us about that and what was going on in places like Greece and Turkey and Palestine. Right. In early 1947, Britain is rapidly going bankrupt. And there emerges a very significant and uh, contentious discussion within the British cabinet about what to do. And over the course of just three weeks, starting in late January, you see all the pillars of Britain's empire beginning to collapse. Burma, Palestine, India, Greece. In late February, the British announced to the U.S. State Department that they were pulling their 40,000 troops out of Greece and would basically be handing over responsibility for uh, Greece, which was in the midst of a terrible civil war, to the United States. And that was really a wake-up call for the State Department, that if they didn't do something to help first prop up Britain, but second, to take over Britain's security responsibilities that we might be headed toward a third world war. And was part of the Marshall Plan explicitly aimed at helping Britain's colonies? The FDR administration had been quite distinctly anti-imperialist, particularly Vice President Henry Wallace, who I've just written a political biography of, And the British government was very concerned about this part of the American agenda. So the United States did want to see the end of European empires around the world, but at the time didn't really have a very coherent plan for replacing it with something that would be stable and democratic. So what else did Britain get from the plan? What kinds of financial help and support were put in place. I've been quite amazed over the years since I published the book to to discover that many British commentators weren't even aware that Britain had gotten significant aid under the Marshall Plan. Britain was, in fact, by far the number one beneficiary. It received $3.2 billion over four years. France was the number two beneficiary at $2.7 billion. In current U.S. dollars were talking about something on the order of uh, $40 billion. And as a percentage of U.S. and British GDP, extremely significant, it was about 2% of British GDP at the time. So this aid was very, very significant. Now, I should emphasize that different beneficiary countries use their American aid very differently. France used it primarily for economic modernization. Italy used it mainly for monetary stabilization. 
Britain used it mainly for fiscal stabilization. That is 97% of the aid that went to Britain was ultimately dedicated to debt retirement. Now, since money is fungible, this was a very clever way of Britain using its aid in a way that allowed it to retain control over how to spend it. Because the Americans did accord to themselves some, some right of veto power over the way the money was spent. So by Britain saying, oh, we'll put it towards debt retirement, the Americans couldn't object. But since money was fungible, it obviously freed up funds to spend on other things, such as the establishment of a welfare state, nationalization of industry, and other initiatives that, quite frankly, the Truman administration was not supportive of. But at the end of the day, the Truman administration determined that the Marshall Plan was primarily a foreign policy initiative and that ultimately establishing the credibility of what the State Department called the NCL in Europe, the non-communist left, was critical. So even if the Truman administration did not always agree with how economic policy was structured in Europe, provided the policies were being put in place by legitimately democratic governments, as they obviously were in Europe, the State Department was supportive. So socialism was just about acceptable because it was a far better alternative than communism. Yes. I mean, the, the, there were difficult discussions between the United States and Britain about elements of British policy, in particular the housing program in Britain. Um, the United States priority was to uh, restart industrial production around Europe as rapidly as possible. And it felt that many of the initiatives that Britain was giving priority to were not, in fact, doing that. And in fact, Britain's recovery was somewhat slower than recoveries on the continent. The one place where the United States did insist on its policies over British policy in terms of economics was in Germany. The British government was supportive of SPD policy in Germany to nationalize key industries and the United States would not allow that. So they were okay with Britain pursuing such a policy at home, but not within Germany. Henry Kissinger, the US Secretary of State who died in 2023, said that the plan had a spiritual component. What did he mean by that? I think he probably took that term from George Kennan, who was the State Department's architect of the containment policy towards the Soviet Union after World War II. Kennan emphasized always what he considered to be what he called the psychological dimension of the Marshall Plan. That is, the money itself, though it was very significant, about $160 billion in current dollar terms as a percentage of U.S. GDP near, would be the equivalent of about a trillion dollars today. It was very significant. Kennan always said that that money was really just a pump primer and that the main objective was to convince Europeans that the United States was not going home as it had after World War I, but was going to maintain 
full engagement, which is one reason why this was a multi-year plan, a four-year plan, rather than a, a one-and-done, write a big check and wish everybody good luck. So I think Kissinger got that perspective primarily from George Kennan. With Marshall Plan money, the thinking went, Europe would be less likely to turn to Russia for help. Earlier in 1947, President Truman had promised to protect Europe against totalitarian regimes. There is no other country to which democratic Greece can turn. No other nation is willing and able to provide the necessary support for a democratic Greek government. One one of the primary objectives of the foreign policy of the United States is the creation of conditions in which we and other nations will be able to work out a way of life free from coercion. This is no more than a frank recognition that totalitarian regimes imposed upon free peoples by direct or indirect aggression undermine the foundations of international peace and hence the security of the United States. Should we fail to aid Greece and Turkey in this fateful hour, the effect will be far-reaching to the West as well as to the East. The threat of communism in Europe felt very real. In Britain, we tend to think of the British Empire as being far away, Canada or Australia, India, parts of Africa. But in fact, Britain had a lot of interest in Europe and the Near East at the end of the Second World War, and it had been giving money to Greece and Turkey in particular, aid. And in 1947, one of the leading influences on the Marshall Plan, William Clayton, said that the reins of world leadership are fast slipping from Britain's competent but very weak hands. What was America's biggest concern about that? I asked Stephanie Hinnerschitz, a history professor at the Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. America was mostly concerned that if the British were unable to sort of prop up what Americans would have described of as freedom, the freedom fighters, the people who loved liberty and democracy, basically anyone anti-Soviet communism, if Britain were unable to keep up the fight there, then that meant that this could open up some doors to communism sort of slowly or quickly creeping further west and expanding itself further into the Western Hemisphere, the Western continent. And then the U.S. would lose a buffer between its own self, even though there was an ocean between, but it would lose this sort of political, social buffer between democracy and then what Americans viewed as rapidly expanding communism. So this idea that with Britain being unable to continue to support this mission that America was very invested in, which was pushing back against Soviet communism, this could lead to sort of a power vacuum. And whenever there was a power vacuum for the United States after World War II, especially as you get further into the Cold War, this was just one more opportunity for Stalin and the Soviet Union to extend its influence. 
And it's important to remember that Russia at that time wasn't the Cold War enemy that it later became, as far as many Britons were concerned, because it had fought Hitler and were on the same side. And things like the Holomodor, the Ukrainian famine caused by Stalin, for example, were not really widely known or talked about. Was the fear that Europe could become wholly communist, well-founded. I mean, I can imagine that some of the uh, states the further east might well be susceptible. But was there a real fear that countries like France and Britain could too become communist? There was. There was a lot of concern that if you looked at what the Soviet Union's goals were after World War II, there was a very coordinated attempt to try and prop up sympathetic parties or sympathetic elements in places like Italy and France and then especially Greece so that they would be more supportive of Soviet Union's goals to kind of counter any sort of Western influence. There was a lot of unrest, not just economic, but also political unrest and instability in some of these places. Italy, I'm thinking of especially. There were certainly elements there that if you were the United States or Britain sort of looking in, you could see that these have the potential for sort of falling prey to Soviet-style communism. Now, one of the things that the United States and Britain grappled with is trying to see, or really looking at any, <laughs> any form of anything that resembled communism to any degree was an example of communism spreading further west, although there were a lot of different elements that went into why some more left-leaning parties or elements sort of gained a foothold. But there really was a concerted effort, you know, on behalf of the Soviet Union to try and expand its influence and to try and build some sympathetic relationships with certain political elements or social elements within places like Italy, I'm thinking of especially. In the end, the UK got the biggest share of Marshall Plan aid in the form of debt repayments. And in retrospect, was that the right thing to do, do you think? I think it was. I think going back on, if you're trying to understand what the United States view on the Marshall Plan was and how much aid was given to some of the European nations, politically, I think it was a good call to have a lot of aid that was directed over to Britain. And Britain, like you said, did receive the largest share. The idea there was to try and get Britain to go back up to sort of pre-war industrial levels of production. And considering this very long relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom, trying to develop a better trade relationship with the UK after the war, trying to get the UK back up to that industrial level that it was before. Politically, this made sense. If you're looking at per capita, which was one of the, the ways the Marshall Plan aid was divided population, but also which nations had the most promise for reboosting its industrial productivity, it would make political sense that the UK did receive such a huge portion of the Marshall aid, more than, than anyone else. So politically, I would say it did make sense in the time frame, in this Cold War era that's emerging. I think it did. I think it made a lot of sense. America had just helped us win the war at a cost of dollars and lives that was massive. How did Americans feel about sending billions of dollars more to Europe? The opinion was pretty split early on. So Truman was supportive of his Truman Doctrine, which meant sending aid, whether it was financial or political advising to places people like in Greece to push back against some of these communist forces. 
There was already a little bit of backlash to that initially, the fact that the United States has just dumped so much military aid and money into the war effort. But a lot of Americans were wondering just how much more is necessary. We did lend lease. There were there was a lot of aid that was given. So after World War II, you did have a lot of Americans sort of across the country who were wondering how much is enough. We had just won the war. Didn't we do our part? Didn't the U.S. through lend lease give massive amounts of aid to begin with? And there were others who were looking at what's going on over in Europe, especially with the Soviet Union. And understanding that there could be something at risk, that this went beyond just pumping money into the economy, but there was a real security issue here. It was a really sort of masterful, concerted effort on behalf of Truman, who was a Democratic president in a Congress that was largely controlled by Republicans at the time. But there was a, it was a real campaign issue. It was a real campaign program to go out and try and convince Americans from really all walks of life that giving aid through what will become the Marshall Plan would be beneficial to not just the world, if we're in this fight against communism, but also economically. And that's what really helped to hit the point home to a lot of people. So really like small town farmers, you had politicians going there and explaining that, sure, you know, Britain's on the other side of the ocean and we did just go and help them. But think about your benefits through trade. They can buy your products if the Marshall Plan, if this aid actually does go through. So it was interesting. It was split at first, but it largely becomes a bipartisan effort. And you do get a lot of Americans from all across the country who are supportive of this program. But the Marshall Plan is seldom discussed in popular British post-war history, even though right now it has some extraordinary resonances with the situation we find ourselves in in Ukraine. Why do you think that is? I think it has a lot to do with what were the long-term impacts of it. So what did it actually do? It gets a little complicated. We, you know, in the U.S. have similar issues with looking back and trying to understand the cause and effects. So why was it that the United States was able to rebound after World War II and become this economic powerhouse? There's a lot of a lot of debate over that. There's on one hand, you have huge influx of government dollars to create some of these broader welfare programs. And that's one part of the story. And then you know, there are a lot of people who like to embrace this idea that there was a spirit and Americans pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And, and that's what explains this post-war boom. And I imagine it could be similar over in the UK where what good did the Marshall Plan do? Well, on one hand, did it help to completely transform Britain into this industrial post-war powerhouse? You know, not really. What happened with Britain after the war when it comes to things like social reform? So I think in terms of why maybe the Marshall Plan is not discussed in post-war, more popular history in Britain, is maybe a lot of people just aren't quite sure what to make of it. They aren't quite sure what the long-term cause of it is. And the legacy has gotten so wrapped up in current political affairs that it's difficult to kind of go back and really look and see where it came from and what it did. So I think like with a lot of things, especially with World War II history, it's dependent upon the current political context and just what to do with 
an injection of foreign aid, what the UK did or did not do with it is a little bit of a sticky, sticky subject. Britons have a strange way of thinking about the UK-US relationship. We think of it as special, and I don't think you guys do. And I don't blame you at all for that. <laughs> but do you think that the Marshall Plan plays into that with our almost reluctance to acknowledge what you did for us? So to, with, with your first question in terms of what, you know, what the US, what we think about our special relationship with Britain, I think we think it's special when we want it to be or when we <laughs> when we think it's fun or, or warm and fuzzy to do so. From a military standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, I think there's a lot to be said about Americans in our history cooperating with Britain during World War II and thinking about shared intelligence undertakings, sharing of different you know, military technologies, things that helped us to win the war. I think that's kind of the special relationship that a lot of Americans think of when we think of, a, of that relationship, but it doesn't always pop up in, in the public discussion that way. And I think for the UK and the Marshall Plan, again, I go back to this idea of what is it that Britain did with the Marshall Plan aid. And I think it could be depending on on what you want to get out of that history, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, did the US give a large portion of aid to the UK under the Marshall Plan? Absolutely. But then there were also loans. <laughs> so there were also loans that were given, which perhaps doesn't look quite as much as as resembling this massive influx of just aid with no strings attached. So I think the idea that the U.S. did help Britain, did help the U.K. through the Marshall Plan, could lend itself to sort of this special relationship. But, for you know, for the U.S. and how we view it, that doesn't really factor in a lot at all. Was this the moment when the U.S. basically took over the U.K.'s role as a world leader? In Britain, we tend to think of that as when various colonies in Africa ceased to become colonies and became independent. But was it actually in 1947 when we depended so much on the US effectively to bail us out? I think it's a turning point in terms of what happens geopolitically after World War II, where one of the things that the UK did try and use Marshall Plan aid for was to think about how to maintain some of those relationships with other nations in the Commonwealth or other parts of the Commonwealth, Canada and things of that nature. But it's sort of two kind of divergent paths where even before 1945, the end of the war, you, you saw the U.S. with its ability to produce things, produce goods that were needed for the war effort with the U.S. and its ability to kind of harness all these different nations together for the Allied war effort. It kind of starts a little bit before then. But then I do think with the Marshall Plan, the aid that's given, massive amount of aid given to Britain and also some of the European nations, just the United States' ability to be able to do that when so many other European nations, including Britain, were unable to from you know, a geopolitical standpoint, a strategic standpoint, I do think that moment is one where the United States sort of steps up as the leader in this new growing Cold War world, if you look at it that way. So I think with everything that's going on, I think with the ability of the United States to be able to extend itself economically and politically and also socially, I think that is a moment where while the U.S. is expanding its influence across the globe in a way that 
very well could look like <laughs> imperialism or colonialism, that is the time where you start to see Britain's ability to be able to maintain that economic interest and investment in colonial possessions is on the decline. So I think the Marshall Plan, that is an interesting way to look at it for sure, how that is a moment where things start to flip and you do see the U.S. become this world power. The way Britain spent our martial aid had consequences. Historians are still arguing about whether we spent it on the right things. We didn't spend nearly as much on infrastructure as West Germany did. That's one of the reasons why our car industry fell behind and we took so long to electrify our railways. Martial money also meant that Britain could keep up our armed forces and hang on to trade with the Commonwealth. It gave us the illusion that we were still a leading power. In fact, we'd been bailed out. We just weren't ready to admit it. I'm Ros Taylor, and I'll be back in a fortnight with another edition of Jam Tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, have you listened to Series 1? Just search Jam Tomorrow in your podcast app. Find out what Britons wanted after the war and whether we got it. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was me, Jade Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, and artwork is by Jim Parrott. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>